Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. This week, I talked with New York Times columnist, author, and old friend Ron Lieber about his book, The Price You Pay for College, and how he came to be a person of such tremendous influence in his own life. Welcome to The Indispensables. It is a great honor and pleasure to have as our guest on this episode, Ron Lieber. Ron is the author of a new book called The Price You Pay for College, uh, out from Harper in January. Um, this is his fifth book. Uh, he's the Your Money columnist for the New York Times. And uh, two of his books have been New York Times bestsellers. He's a three-time winner of the Gerald Loeb Award, Business Journalism's Highest Honor. Uh, he lives in Brooklyn with his wife, who, get this, is the New York Times reporter Jody Cantor. Uh, if that rings a bell, but you can't remember just why, then you better Google her. Um, and uh, uh, Ron Lieber, welcome to The Indispensables. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I'm, I'm delighted. And uh, uh, for full disclosure, uh, Ron and I went to Amherst together, so we are part of the Amherst Mafia. <laughs> we are. We are gigantic. Tusks up. <laughs> <laughs> and our, uh, 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 our first books came out back in the 90s, not too far apart from each other. You know, I think that's how we first met. I think, is it possible that we bonded over this experience of trying to figure out how publishing works and, and feeling more like outsiders than insiders and having um, the number two in front of our ages and, and feeling some sense of imposter syndrome? Uh, I, I believe that's true. And I believe we went to each other's book signings at the Lord Jeff bookstore and all that. Yes, I remember. I remember seeing you there in the bookstore. Yeah, that was that was that was the olden days back in the 90s mm -hmm. uh, when business models were magical and foosball table tables were in every teaming space. <laughs> right. I could use a little foosball right about now, to be honest. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so so, Ron, you know, people here, you know, they're like, wow, this guy writes for The New York Times. He's written five books, uh, not to mention you raise children and all this stuff. Uh, and you win all these awards. And um, and this book is is particularly uh, interesting. And I'd say mission driven, uh, the price you pay for college, you're jumping into a debate that's gotten hotter and hotter. And I think you've written sort of what's now going to be the definitive book on this topic. But 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 let me start here. Uh, people always ask me, you know, where do these people come from? So how did you get to where you are? Yeah, well, you know, I think my origin story is is directly related to what this book turned into at the end of the day. Um, there's a, a great sage in, in the world of money named Tim Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R. Um, -E He's written a book of his own. He's a financial services professional, a certified financial planner. And there's a quip of his that I always repeat. Personal finance is more personal than it is finance. And you can interpret that in all sorts of ways, but it absolutely applies uh, to this book and how I came to write it. Because for me, it goes back to you know my origin story. So I come from Chicago. My parents, you know, did 
reasonably well uh, in their careers and financially, uh, so much so that I was able to go to Francis Parker in Chicago, which is, you know, arguably the best private school, K-12 school in the city. And when my brother and sister came along five years later, they went as well. So three of us were at Parker. Uh, and then in seventh grade, a couple things happened that kind of threw us completely off the rails. So my parents split up, which, you know, if you if it's happened to you, you know that it's expensive, among many other things. One household turns into two. There are a bunch of legal bills and, you know, it can be a real mess. And then one of my parents lost their job. And that parent did not earn all that much to speak of for a couple of years. And it was about a dozen years before my family was anywhere back to anything close uh, to where it had been financially. And so the Francis Parker community sort of took us in and did not evict us for lack of ability to pay. We went on scholarship, which was still the you know most generous thing that anybody's ever done for me in my entire life. So I got to stay at Parker with those kids who became my family. But when it came time to apply to college, we did not have enough money to pay for the schools that I wanted to attend. And Francis Parker in the 80s didn't have a lot of kids who were on financial aid. The college counselor did not know much about how the financial aid system worked. But he did have a name for us. He knew a guy, the guy to see in the Chicagoland area if you were applying for financial aid and wanted somebody to give you some advice. And so we call up this guy with a you know 708 area code, suburban Chicago. We weren't sure where. He gives us this address on Hinman Street in Evanston. And this is before the age of Google Maps. So, you know, we just, uh, you know, get some directions and, and find our way up there. The following Tuesday, we brought the $50 in cash that he had requested. And when we show up at the address, it's the Office of Financial Aid at Northwestern University. Huh. We're thinking to ourselves, what is going on here, right? So we sort of slip into the side door at 5.01 p.m. Uh, as requested because, uh, you know, apparently uh, this guy didn't want his colleagues knowing what was going on. And then it became clear. This guy was the assistant director of financial aid at Northwestern University, and he had this side hustle going. After his colleagues had gone home, a bunch of, you know, local families with some kind of financial need would sort of file in, and you'd give him the 50 bucks, which he almost certainly wasn't reporting to the IRS, and he would tell you all of the secrets of the financial aid system. So, so he's doing this sort of off book? Exactly, right? He's acquired all of this knowledge by helping people through the process at Northwestern. And then on the side, he's giving advice for money to people who are applying to similar schools. Now, I assume he would not have taken us in if I was applying to Northwestern, but because I was applying to Amherst, he was more than happy to help us. Uh, so this has got to be 80s, right? This is 19, fall of 1988. So uh, this is, you know, so this is, I mean, I'm dating myself here. This is before the FAFSA financial aid form even existed. This is back in the days of the FAF, uh, the financial aid form, uh, which is what you used to have to fill out um, back then. So it turned out this guy knew exactly what he was talking about. And I got into Amherst early decision. I got a financial aid package that was, you know, reasonably generous. And the other thing he explained to us was that it was okay to go back to the school and ask for more money, to ask for a better deal, to kind of lay ourselves bare financially and just say, hey, you know, this may not work for us. Can you do anything more for us? And so I got to know Joe Paul Case, the head of financial aid at Amherst College, who happened to be an ordained minister. That was his side hustle. 
right? He was out preaching on the side. He was a, a man of the cloth. And every year my mom would fly out at, you know, an expense that was significant to us, given the things were tight. My mom would fly out and we'd sit in his office and we'd plead our case. And inevitably, uh, Dean Case or St. Joe Paul Case, as he became known in our household, came through <laughs> um, with money. Right. So is it any surprise, really, that I grew up to be the guy whose beat is beating the system? I don't think so. I don't think it's a surprise at all. And I think it all traces back to having figured out how stuff worked because some grown up was out there willing to explain it to me for a reasonable amount of money. Right. And so here I am now. This is making me feel a little bit cynical looking back. But um, what I love about your work is that it's not a side hustle. It is a straight job, and it appears in the greatest newspaper of record I know of, um, the New York Times, and you're giving darn good advice about how people can understand and work various systems that affect their personal finance. This one is so interesting, I think, because uh, as, you know, and, and, and of course, uh, your financial aid story ties directly to The Price You Pay for College, which is also the title of your book. And the advice you're giving here, it's so interesting because you're basically saying, hey, this is one of the most important financial decisions a family will ever make. And it has a huge effect, not just on your ability to get a great education and set yourself up that way, but it, but it also has a huge impact on, on the finances of a family overall. That's exactly right. I mean, it was certainly true for us, right? And, you know, I remember this, this moment of, it was almost an awakening of, of class consciousness. I mean, I, I felt it some in middle school and high school you know, when it became clear that we were not going to be able to do the same things as a lot of my friends did. You know, I, I was able to get the same basketball shoes as my teammates, but we never went on vacation. Right. So, you know, that that's its own form of privilege. Right. I, I was I was at Francis Barker, an amazing school. They allowed me to stay. Uh, I was still able to get the Nikes. I just wasn't able to you know, go away, uh, you know, on the weekends or, or, or in the summer or, or on school vacations. But, you know, I, I, I learned a little bit about what it was like to have less. And then I remember getting to Amherst and the first weekend of, of orientation. There was this meeting on the calendar where all of the people on financial aid were supposed to meet and what was known as the the red room at college the the converse uh, the converse building and so i remember seeing that you know it was it, i was pretty sure it was either four o'clock or four thirty uh and i remember thinking to myself all day which of us from the first floor of james hall are going to peel off and walk down the hill and which of us are not? And I spent the whole day pondering, wondering, you know, basically sniffing out social class signals on my hallmates, trying to figure out which one of them were going to be coming with me and which one of them didn't have to worry about money at all. Right. And so, some of whom would be, you know, uh, to your point, going on uh pretty darn nice vacations and so on at the age of 18. Right. And by the way, some of them took me with them. Right. Um, you know, one of the things I, I mentioned in the book, um, you know, I do get a little wistful at a few points about um, the people that I've met along the way, particularly in college and, and what I learned from them. And, you know, part of the moral of the story of being in a diverse environment and perhaps paying extra to be in one is that you learn 
a lot about people's differences, but also about their similarities. There is one Amherst classmate that, you know, took us all to a beachfront compound on, you know, the west coast of the mainland of Mexico. And then there was the other one that invited everybody over uh, at the beginning of each vacation to hang out in her basement in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, uh, right next to the airport. So in other words, if, if you were on your way to the airport, the family, her family would pick you up in this giant cargo van with all of your luggage, and you'd go and eat American chop suey in their basement, and then they'd get back in the car and drive you five minutes to the airport. And you know, my my feelings of of love and gratitude, um, you know, towards both those families are equal because they taught me a lot about what it means to be a, a good human in the world, what 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 it means to be hospitable. And, you know, what would I have learned that from families that were you know, much more similar to me, you know, if I had joined some Jewish fraternity somewhere, I don't know, maybe, right. But, you know, I feel lucky that um, I had the experience that I had. And I think it was all of that, that, you know, that turned me into a, a, a personal finance reporter, um, or, or certainly just a reporter in general. So, you know, there were, there were hiccups and screw ups along the way. And I didn't really find personal finance until I was in my thirties, but all the seeds were planted there, um, you know, by that guy in Evanston and by that, you know, walk down the hill uh, with the other financial aid kids. All those seeds were planted there. And, and so they were planted both from the standpoint of subject matter, understanding that there was a lot more than meets the eye to uh, financing uh, college and the importance of financing college. Uh, not to mention uh, the, the, the quip you started with that uh, personal finance is more personal than finance, but, but also uh, having navigated all that, uh, you got a world-class education and were able at a young age uh, to write a book, um, your first book, and uh, to become a reporter at Fortune. Was Fortune your first gig? It was not. Um, but, you know, one of the lessons for me on, you know, the topics of snobbery and elitism, kind of whether it's your own or, or whether it's somebody else's or, or whether it's just sort of mere tribalism for lack of a better explanation um, is this, right? I, I got out of Amherst and I was hired for my first job where I spent about a year at a startup legal newspaper uh, that was edited by somebody who went to Amherst and only posted the job listing at Amherst and Williams and Harvard. And then when I left that job to go to work for Fortune Magazine, I was edited by someone who went to Amherst. And I was hired by someone whose kid had gone to Harvard, who was a total snob about kids from quote-unquote good schools. Uh, and then when I left Fortune to go to Fast Company, I was hired by someone who went to Amherst and edited by someone who went to Amherst, right? Um, and so it's pretty hard to argue that that gold-plated degree, that gold-plated sheepskin did not make a difference in terms of you know, the doors that were open to me and the benefit of the doubt that was granted. Now, I'm not here to say that that matters in every industry or that it even matters all the time in journalism. And these days, there's actually more than a little skepticism in many circles, including journalism, about kids coming out of the Ivy League. You know, if you're, if you're coming out of a fancy school now, you sort of have to prove that you're not an entitled privileged jerk. Um, but it did it did matter for me. I have no doubt um, that I was given the benefit of the doubt uh, because of this. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for it. 
Yeah, uh, and and I think it's important. And I it, look, my, my take on it is, I often say to people, you know, here's what it means. It doesn't mean everything, but it does mean that other people with similar experiences uh, sort of have a shorthand for what your education looked like and some of the things you probably know and some of the things you probably know about learning and that 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 is a shortcut so so uh, take us through the the sort of mission uh that the book accomplishes how do you help people understand the ROI of of the college uh, experience the college education and the college uh degree? Well, it starts with making sure that people understand the system and are asking themselves the right questions about how or if they want to navigate within it. Um, you know, one of the lessons for me as a teenager uh, of, of applying for financial aid was that the world was just utterly stuffed with complex systems involving money and that they are totally made to be hacked legally, the, the world was just filled with financial complexity. And part of the reason I've, I've been able to stay gainfully employed in this general area of writing about money is that things have only gotten more complicated, not less, right? So, you know, my job today as I see it is to, you know, help people navigate these systems and then beat them. And maybe eventually to break them if they're truly unfair. But, you know, I help people live in the world as it is um, for the most part. Yeah, I, I, I'm a pragmatist uh, as well, uh, although I think a, a principled pragmatist as I, I uh, based on uh, uh, my familiarity with your work, uh, I would describe you that way as well. But, but, but take us through like, you know, much of what I'm interested in is, you know, how people show up in the world. And um, how people show up is affected by uh, whether they choose to make this investment of time, energy, and money in, in their education. And if it's not this kind of education, some other kind of education. And, you know, I'm really interested in sort of how it shapes people's values, uh, how it shapes people's style of interacting and how they think about relationships, how they think about service and, you know, how they conduct themselves. And maybe uh, my bias is too strong that the college degree, for me, it does serve as a shorthand, but maybe, maybe, uh, you know, I've certainly known more people than I can count who did not go to college uh, who show up in the world in ways that are super impressive, who are great at learning, great at thinking, great at serving, great at interacting with other people. Um, and so it, it seems like you're uh, just the guy to help parse the the difference. Well, so here's a way to think about it, right? In addition to trying to help people navigate uh this complex system, I'm also trying to get them to ask a series of fundamental questions. Um, you know, as in, you know, any course of human events, it's always important to stop and ask yourself, you know, what the point of the exercise actually is, right? I mean, there's two basic questions here. What is the definition of success for this 18-year-old who's about to graduate from high school? What is the definition of success and how much is enough? And your child's answer to that question may be very different 
from the way that you answered it when you are 18, when you were 18. And then you may have answered those questions very differently every, you know, handful of years that went by. Uh, we're human beings. So, of course, the answer to such a cosmic question um, should change over time. But the very first thing you want to do, right, is, is establish for yourself, does everyone in the family actually agree on the definition of success here, on what the goal is? And if college is an option, then you've got to ask yourself a different set of questions. What is college for anyway? You know, it sounds like a, a basic question or, or something that, you know, belongs in like philosophy 101, but it's not meant to be rhetorical at all. And you can't go shopping for something that might cost more than $300,000 without actually identifying for yourself, you know, what the point is. Like, what, what are you trying to actually get out of this thing? So it turns out that there are only three answers that I hear from people with, you know, kind of varieties and variations on each. But, you know, I hear three things. And this is a useful way for a family to at least start a conversation about it. And, and also for anybody who's interviewing entry-level graduates um, to think about it too, right? You might ask them, what did you go to college for anyway? Like, what's the why here? Like, what did you get out of this? What were you trying to accomplish? And I really think there's only three things. The first one is you're going to college to learn which seems kind of obvious, right? Um, but there are lots of people who don't learn much of anything in college. And believe it or not, the colleges themselves don't study it much. They don't have much proof that people are making progress intellectually. They don't test you on the way in and they don't test you on the way out. Because if they did, U.S. News might get a hold of those test results and then there'd be something else to grade the colleges on unfairly in their view. So we have no idea when anybody's learning. But you're probably going to college to learn. You're going to college, in theory, if this is important to you, to have your mind grown and your mind blown, right? You're looking for an instructor of super high intelligence and competence to take your brain apart and rearrange it from its component parts into a bigger and better version of what that instructor began with at the beginning of the term. And you want that. Yeah. And so Ron, Ron, is, is, is that, is that goal one or part of goal one or is that goal two? This is goal one, right? Yeah. So it's still goal one. So goal one is learning. And also the way I would paraphrase, uh, have your mind blown and grown is, you know, kind of learning how to learn and uh, questioning all your assumptions and, uh, and, and learning how to learn and how, how to think. Yep. So that's goal number one, the learning, the education. So number two, um, goal number two is to find your people. It is kinship. It is Ron Lieber finding his way to Bruce Tulgan. It is Bruce Tulgan finding his way to his wife, Debbie Applegate. It is Ron Lieber finding his way to Christine Bader, who found her way to Jen Sale, who introduced Ron Lieber to Jody Cantor. Um, so what is this about? It's, it's about peers, right? It is about the friends who will pick you up and hoist you on their shoulders and carry you through life. They will lift you up on a chair to do the horror at your wedding. They will lift your casket and carry it and put it in the ground when you die. They will be there for you on LinkedIn. They will invest in your startup. Um, they will be there all along the way uh, to influence you all along and not just in the classroom, but especially in the classroom and in the dorm room. You, you, you can cry on their shoulder. They'll cheer you on in uh, uh, all that. And this is what uh, would be called in crass terms networking. Uh, but the thing about college friendships is there's so much intimacy 
that it really is um, a deep level of of connection. Yeah, I mean, it's intimacy, but it's also so much more than that. And I know you know this because, you know, you're the um, cat herder for the Amherst College class of 89, or you were for a long time writing the notes. Yeah, I've been, I've been our class secretary for for uh, uh, 15 years, 16 years, 17 right. years. So and, you know and, this. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but it isn't just about peers, right? Finding your people is also also about finding your mentors. So, you know, I was bellyaching before about uh, how little we actually know about what happens to undergraduates when they're in college. Um, Mitch Daniels, who's the former governor of Indiana, uh, became the president of Purdue University six or seven years ago, and, and he was just aghast at how little the institution knew about itself or what, if anything, it was accomplishing. So he went out and spent a bunch of money to hire Gallup to do a whole bunch of polling. And what Gallup found, and it kind of rolled this research out over many years, was that you know there were three or four things, elements uh, of, a, of an undergraduate education that led to outsized level of happiness among relatively young adults in the workplace. And one of them was having a mentor. So finding your people in college is also about finding your way to the professors, to the advisors, to the St. Joe Paul cases in the financial aid office, uh, to people, um, uh, men and women of the cloth, to deans of students. Heck, it could be your supervisor, you know, in the dining hall uh, where you work uh, behind the counter, you know, shoveling chicken pucks for, for four years. You can find these people who uh, will influence you all along the way, these grownups, right? So that's fine. Finding your people. That's number two. And yeah, and, and and let me say two things about that too, or at least ask you your, your reaction to this, because what I'm thinking there is, you know, um, it also having mentors, and I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I always uh, joke about my time at Amherst um, and, you know, we'd be in the snack bar and I'd be looking at a particular professor I admired and say, oh my gosh, he just ordered a bagel and a Diet Coke. And, and somebody would be like, well, what do you think he eats? You know, well, but just, wow, you know, and, and uh, so uh, I don't know if that kind of uh, professor worshiping is, um, it's certainly a subset of, of, of mentoring relationships, but, but I think you learn how to be a mentee, you learn how to have a mentor, even if those people don't become your long-term mentors, um, you learn how to be a mentee and how to have a mentor. Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. And I wish that schools were more deliberate about this. So a lot of them have seized on the Gallup research, um, and a few of them are particularly good at, at, at mentor-mentee um, you know, relationships. I mean, uh, at Butler University in Indianapolis, they set all of the business school students, the undergrads, up with mentors, and they pay a bunch of people in the community, retired executives, executives, judges, you know, people from all walks of professional life to, to come in and do this work. And it's, 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 it's a self-selecting group of people and, you know, it can work quite well. Um, but, you know, often these, these relationships happen naturally. You know, the challenge here is that, you know, not every student is an ex extrovert and not every student comes in with the feeling of, you know, let's call it entitlement, uh, you know, to take up the time of these exalted professors. And, you know, if you're a first generation student in particular, um, you know, maybe you don't know that this is available to you and that you in fact have a, a right as a consumer of this product and service to reach out and grab it, right? That's what the teachers are there for in part. And 
I wish it was it was clear to people um, just how powerful these relationships can be. Yeah, I, I boy, I'm 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 getting goosebumps, and you know, it's funny because I have a. Uh, uh, mixed feelings about whether uh, organizations should formalize mentoring programs uh, or not, because I do think organic mentoring relationships um, are more sustained and more authentic, you know, and sometimes the forced mentoring relationships, the ones that really uh, take off are the ones that have some, well, the ones that have an organic and authentic component to them after all. The ROI here, the thing people are looking for is the education, which is the stuff you learn and learning how to learn. It's your people, which is your network of peers uh, where there is uh, some level of intimacy and connection. And then uh, getting your mentors. And and I'm going to say learning how to be a mentee and how to have a mentor. Um, Okay. And what's the third thing? Well, the third thing is the credential. There's a couple different ways to look at it. One way you might look at it is if you're coming from a a low-income background, if you're the first in your family to attend college, um, maybe what the credential means to you is securing a stable place for yourself on the socioeconomic uh, class ladder. Right. So you're gunning for the nursing degree or the teaching certificate or the accounting degree, or you're trying to become a doctor or find your way to some profession or another that is relatively recession proof, right? Where you're trying to get stability and trying to do better for yourself and your family. And for those kinds of students, Sometimes, you know, it's not necessary uh, to spend $300,000 or more. Um, You can establish yourself in one of those careers, in one of those industries, uh, with a degree from a state institution, and maybe not even the flagship state institution. So, you know, it depends on your need. But then there are people, and I guess in retrospect, maybe I was one of them, although I I didn't quite know it at the time, because I wasn't really sure as a 16-year-old exactly what it was that I was gunning for. But for other people, the credential is a way to open doors to worlds that they could never imagine entering otherwise, right? Now, did 16-year-old me, 16-year-old me was aware that something called the Time Life Building existed in New York City. And it wasn't just from those late night television commercials with the people in the headsets, you know, selling the Time Life books. Um, There was a friend of mine from middle school who showed up at our school, whose dad was the Midwest correspondent for Time Magazine, you know, in the early 80s. So I had a sense that there were people in this in the world who who did these kinds of jobs i may have even known that you know there was a building in new york where they did it but could i have imagined in 1988 that by 1994 i would have my own office in the time life building i don't think so but because i went to amherst where people did that you know on a semi-regular basis and not to the University of Illinois, where there were many fewer people, you know, going to the time and life building within five years, because I went to Amherst, I had a sense that this sort of thing was possible, right? I had a sense that like, maybe, maybe I could actually do that. And then I did, right? So, so would it have happened um, had I not reached for um, the more sort of gold-plated credential? I don't know. You can't run scientific studies on this stuff. Um, but it does seem to have made a difference for me. And, you know, for people who are thinking about whether they should 
pay $300,000 instead of $100,000. You know, if you've got a 16 or 17 year old on your hand who absolutely wants to get the most, you know, prestigious venture capital money for their startup when they're 23 after they get their bachelor's degree, or who is like dead set on, you know, working for McKinsey as a management consultant and traveling the globe and learning about the world and and business that way. You know, those kinds of institutions, right? You know, Kleiner Perkins and Y Combinator with their venture capital or or incubator money and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs with their analyst jobs, those institutions are filled with a bunch of snobs and elitists. And even if you're not a snob and elitist, you know, chances are pretty good that your chances of ending up, you know, affiliated with those organizations are going to be better if you go to the super selective school and pay up for it. So, you know, it's, it's, um, this is a thing, right? This is a thing that people do. And I don't want to shy away from snobbery or elitism, uh, even if it's not my own. And the, the credential matters, um, if the person evaluating you uh, values it, right? And but look, you know, you need at least some minimum threshold credential to go to graduate school. And uh, if you want to go to a tier one research university, then uh, you either have to get straight A's at school Q, or you have to get, uh, you know, close to that at a top tier school. Likewise, you know, when you're going into the workplace, it really, you know, the credential does line up with the range of options. It does tend to do that. Now, you know, my colleague Frank Broody wrote a really good book um, a couple of years ago called Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be. And that is true. But, you know, I did a, a, a bunch of research for my own book that was, you know, less about grad school odds and, and more about where you might end up working someday. But, the, you know, the, the same logic applies, which is that, you know, you may be giving yourself a better chance of, you know, ending up at the most selective grad schools or in, in the most selective, um, you know, employers, uh, you know, if you pay up, uh, you know, for a particular kind of undergraduate experience. But that's not saying that everybody should. And in fact, what we're talking about here is like less than 1% of the potential destinations, you know, for any given 18-year-old um, once they're 22. And so we're in a, a sort of exalted atmosphere when we talk about this stuff, but I, I don't want to shy away from it because I'm pretty sure I benefited from it. And I'm pretty sure that a decent sized number of my readers are at least thinking about this. And so I don't want to, I don't want to dodge the hard questions. You answer the hardest questions and you do it in such uh, through such a, a neat analytical framework. It's uh, it's, it's really clarifying. And um let me ask you, separate from from the particular ROI discussion on college, uh, you know, here you are. You're um, a big byline in the New York Times. Your your wife is a big byline in the New York Times. You are a person of influence. Um, you know, what's your approach to relationships and building influence with other people in the real world? You know, it's it's this is an interesting time to ask me that question because 
and you know this too, right? Although you do it more than I do. Um, you know, when you put out um, a, a book into the world, it's it's really interesting to see who comes out of the woodwork to to help and who doesn't. And I'm not actually focusing so much on the who doesn't, in, in part because so many people have come out of the woodwork to help me and, you know, did the last time I, I put a book out six years ago as well. And, you know, I've been thinking a lot about why that is. And the most incredible thing happened, Bruce, and I'm going to try and tell the story without bursting into tears again for like the third time this week. So one of my classmates just out of nowhere posted on our, our Facebook, our, our closed group for the class of 90, 1993, several days ago. And he said, you know, he posted a picture of the book. He had ordered a bunch of them, um, one for himself and a bunch for his clients. He said, you know, the thing that struck me about reading Ron's book is that, you know, he talks um, in some detail about what he gained from knowing all of us. But I want to focus for a second here on what all of us have gained from knowing him. And he related a couple stories that, you know, I didn't even remember about moments in time where I just took 15 seconds or 30 seconds or 60 seconds to, you know, say something nice about something that he was doing, you know, with his business or, or for his clients or with his kid or whatever. And, you know, I do that kind of thing all the time because I just feel like that's what it is to be, you know, human and, and to be kind to your friends and your contacts and colleagues. But this was clearly meaningful from him, for him. And I think it was meaningful for him because he, you know, sees what I've done in the world and, and wonders um, about you know, whether somebody who has the platform that I have becomes someone different than they might have been when they were in college. And I don't actually think that happens all that often, but I'm glad that to him, I have not. Because then he said, right, he said, could you please post a comment on, you know, the ways in which Ron has has touched you and influenced you, because I feel like he deserves to hear it right now. And there was just this, this lovely thread of people saying the nicest things. And and, you know, Bruce's book may or may not make the New York Times bestseller list at 5 p.m. this afternoon when it comes out. It may or may not sell 100,000 copies. It may or may not, uh, you know, earn out its advance. But hearing that um, from my classmates made it all worth it. And so, you know, on purpose or by accident, um, you know, it's the highest compliment somebody could pay to me. And it's a, it's a reminder that uh, I want to be conscious about making people feel that way and not just do it subconsciously. I mean, it's good that I have those natural instincts, but to consciously reach out to people and make them feel supported and remember that, you know, for better or for worse, some people see a compliment coming from me as, as being more meaningful than, um, you know, a, a compliment coming from you know, an average person on the street. That's that's a privilege that I have um, that also comes with a certain amount of power. And I want to use it to its maximum emotional impact um, to make people feel as good about themselves as I possibly can, particularly deserving people. Yeah, listen, um, I'll tell you something, um, you know, again, for full disclosure, because of our age difference, we missed each other at Amherst. So we bonded over Amherst and at Amherst at homecoming and, you know, with books coming out around the same time and all that. And we've known each other ever since. Uh, but we've never been best friends or anything. But I will say that um, I know what those classmates of yours uh, mean when they say that. Because one thing that's always struck me about you is 
you keep track of other people and you you pay attention to other people. Now, a good reporter should do that, but you remember things about people and you uh, you have an other orientation which, you know, our research on uh, the collaboration revolution in the workplace and, um, you know, how people are trying to navigate complex relationships in the workplace these days um, and, and how people are trying to, you know, protect themselves and, you know, they're drowning in overcommitment syndrome and uh, which is all the subject, you know, of my new book. What I've found over and over again is that people who notice other people, who pay attention to other people, who care about other people, who, um, who attend to other people's needs and interests end up being the ones who other people want to go to. They're the ones other people want to support. They're the ones other people want to shine a, shine a bright light on. It's I call it like a selfless, you know, selfish selflessness, but but there's just something about that. And so here's here's my question for you. Is that something that comes naturally or do you learn that? I don't know. I think some of it is innate. You know, I think my mother is like this in particular. So she was a um, she's a long time. She's retired now, but she worked in retail for decades, and she was like the you know beacon of the personal shopping operation at the Neiman Marcus on Michigan Avenue in Chicago. And she was one of these people who knew everybody, knew something about the people that she didn't know, and you know, has always made it her business, even to this day, to kind of keep tabs on, you know, not just her kids, but her kids' friends and her kids' friends' kids. And she remembers this stuff. And so am I modeling the way that she was in the world? Is it something genetic? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, but I would be lying if I said that I wasn't aware of what a useful trait it can be professionally. That's what's so interesting to me because it's strategic, but it's, but it's genuine. And the strategic nature of that behavior, like the more it's purposely strategic, the less genuine it is. And I think the less effective it is. And it's like a little puzzle. Yeah. I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense to me. I, I never hear a voice in my head saying, you know, you're being, um, this isn't authentic, uh, you know, this this act of kindness you're performing, even if it's like a 10 second act of kindness is not authentic because what you're really thinking about is how it might, you know, accrue to you in, in two years. And so, you know, I, I think it would be possible in theory to go overboard with it, but I, my mind just never wanders there because it feels so good to be nice and to be kind, and particularly if you've achieved some level of stature, right? Um, you know, to, to throw the rope back for people who are younger or to help people who are trying to do um, what you have done for the first time themselves, even if it's clear that like they're already smarter than you are. Like I've, I've seen this again and again, you know, with um, some of the writers on parenting who have kind of come up through the ranks or who have, have done their first book after I did my first parenting book. And it's just so obvious 
obvious to me talking, you know, there's a couple in particular that I'm thinking of, but like, you know, I can help you a lot right now in the next three months, but in three years, you're going to be better at this than I am. And it's going to be awesome to see. And I'll be glad to be able to take, you know, 2% credit for adding, you know, some fuel to your, to your rocket launcher. And that's totally turned out to be the case. And it just feels good, right? It feels good to be helpful and useful and to have knowledge that you can um, give to somebody else who, you know, deserves the bright light even more than you do. And, uh, you know, so I, I don't know, you know, is it, does that come from something that was programmed in me genetically or does it come from a, a, a kind of, um, uh, you know, ruthless careerism or is it, is it, is it, or is there a continuum there? And if there is a continuum and I suspect that there is, I hope that it's like 94% genuine and genetic and only 6% um, strategic. But once you know that you have it in you or you can cultivate it, um, I mean, why not use it strategically? If you can make other people feel better and, you know, if they'll throw the rope back for you later on, um, nobody loses in that transaction. Oh yeah, I totally agree. Like I think being aware that it has strategic value doesn't uh, diminish it, the authenticity. I just, and I'm pretty sure in you it's authentic because you've always been that way. I've noticed that uh, since I first knew you, I noticed that. Um, and, you know, but the reason I'm, I'm so curious about it is because of course I'm in the business of teaching grownups in the workplace how to be more effective. And, you know, my latest insights from our research is, hey, one of the best ways you can be effective is to be authentically service-minded and take care of other people's needs. And that's actually going to set you up, man. You know, like, that's good for you. Trust me. Just But but then I, I'm always puzzling about, can you teach somebody that who, who doesn't feel that way. But, but I think you've, you've, uh, I, I'm going to give you the 94% natural. So we'll, I'm going to, I'm going to look into that in our research and see, uh, uh, I'm going to try to do it statistically going forward. Wouldn't that be interesting though? Wouldn't that be interesting if you could develop, um, if you could develop a survey to figure out how much of that exists in someone innately? Um, and, and if it does measure, um, whether they're deploying it, uh, you know, purely out of a sense of good heartedness or or out of a sense of ruthlessness, right? And then train them to to move it, um, you know, back or forth along the continuum. That would make you, uh, you know, I know you're already very good at what you do, but like talk about a billion dollar idea, right? That would be the best form of corporate training that could possibly exist in the entire world, as far as I'm concerned. All right, I'm going to look into that, but uh, I will always cite you. Um, and, uh, and you know, uh, I, I do want to note that uh, your career is is has been one of a very service minded journalism, in my opinion. Um, and likewise, your wife, uh, uh, her her journalism um, has uh, made a huge difference in the world. Um, and uh, again, Google Jody Cantor if you don't know who she is. Um, so let me ask you my closing question here. So now, okay, you've you've given great advice uh, about how to make these decisions about uh, college. What's your advice to somebody? They're coming out of college. They're starting out their life. You know, what's your best career advice? What's your hey? Somebody says, how do I get to be like you? You're you're the mentor. What's your sort of takeaway career advice? Gosh, I, you know, I feel so far from that now that I, I'm not sure I'm actually qualified um, to say 
to, to answer it. And yet I feel sort of compelled to take a shot at it because now all of a sudden I have this kid who's 15 years old and in a very short period of time, uh, really already, you know, she's starting to think about, you know, what she might want to do with herself and who she wants to be. And it's incredible to watch it all unfold in front of me and try to figure out you know, when the right moment is to intervene um, with advice or direction, because, you know, she's she's pretty directed and pretty self-motivated the same way that I was. And so, you know, I'm not sure I have a, a great answer. And I, I know this, you know, bit about following the things that you're passionate about is, is, a, is a cliche, and it's certainly not a, a guarantee of success if you pursue the things that you care about the most. But, you know, the people I know who are happiest and, and most fulfilled at the age of 49 are the people who have found the things that just really turn them on um, intellectually or um, make them happiest in terms of the, the, the kind of servant leadership you know, they can provide to others or the impact they can have on the world. And so you know, I, I, I want people to, to give those things a, a shot so that they can see how it feels to you know, live on the salary that that way of working might provide so that they can imagine what the way is to be entrepreneurial and innovative in that field, because every field has that opportunity. Um, you know, I want them to see what it's like to fail at it, um, because if you fail, you figured out something pretty important, right? And then you can pivot and do something else. So it's hard to get much more granular than that, because I think it does depend, uh, you know, on the 22-year-old and the things that they're passionate about. Um, but that's sort of how it starts. But that'll fit on a bumper sticker, Ron. If you have a passion, give it a shot. Yeah, I, that works. I would put that bumper sticker on my car. That's that's pretty good uh, advice. Um, and I and I like the nuance of it because just follow your passion is is I wouldn't put that bumper sticker on my car. But <laughs> you know, but if you have a passion, give it a shot. I like that. Uh, Ron Lieber, thank you for being a guest on the Indispensables. It was a pleasure. In our next episode, I talk with a longtime contact, Robin DeWeese, who is a staffing professional and a leading defense contractor. If I told you the name of it, I'd have to kill you. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast. That's at goto underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.